Well, let's dig into another but God gold mine this week, shall we? First Corinthians chapter one, take your Bibles and locate that portion of scripture. I'll begin reading from verse 26 in a moment. I'll be answering this question this week, who can be saved? You recall last week, Travis answered the question, how are we saved? He brought us a tremendously powerful message from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And God's word just really blanketed us so well. We saw that it's through Christ and his cross, the grace of God is seen in Jesus Christ. Incidentally, Paul answers that very same question in the verses preceding 1 Corinthians 1, 26, especially 18 through 25. He answers for the Corinthians how we are saved. And he says, it is by God through Christ. He refers to it as the foolishness of God and the weakness of God, meaning that's how the world sees it. But he's referencing the cross of Christ again. And so now beginning in 26, we're going to see who is the who of the how. Who can be saved by God? I'll begin reading in verse 26. Follow along with me, would you? We'll read the first five words. We'll pause, as we do often. We just kind of take this phrase by phrase. And then we'll just kind of walk through the text and answer the question. He says, first of all, for consider your calling brothers. So let's stop there and answer a couple of questions that, that pop out to us in this text. He says, consider your calling. What calling is he referring to? I believe the word calling here means the effective summons to salvation. That moment that God called your name and you responded in repentance and faith, and you answered the call. And you were born again, you were regenerated, you were saved, you were converted. I say that because the word called is used in this section a couple of times back in verse 24. He talks about Jews and Greeks who were called. Back in chapter 1, verse 2 and verse 9, he uses the word called to refer to those who are in Christ Jesus. I also base this understanding on two other synonyms in this same text. Look with me at 1.18. He refers to these folks who are being saved and then in verse 21, also called those who believe. So kind of put all that together. And when he says, consider your calling, what he's saying is consider that moment when you believed. That effective, effectual summons to salvation. Now understand, there are two types of calling, theologically, or I would say biblically. There's a general call to all people to repent and believe. And yet that calling becomes effectual when God's spirit opens up the eyes and the minds and the hearts of one, when they hear the call and they didn't do believe by the spirit's power. This is speaking of the effectual call that is summons to salvation. And Paul here is asking us to consider that. That's the second question. What are we to do with this calling? Paul says to consider it. The word there means to take heed. It means to, to give close attention to, to look at, investigate. Same word used when Peter went to the empty tomb, he looked in. And he saw the grave clothes and it was empty. He gazed at it. He wondered about it. He investigated. He thought about it. He contemplated it. Choose your words there. Paul is saying here, I want you to investigate, consider, think about, meditate on, contemplate your calling. Meditate upon your testimony. Consider your moment of conversion, brothers and sisters. And he's asking us to do that from two angles. We're going to see this unfold in the text. He's going to ask us to consider that calling, first of all, from what it is not. That's verse 26. 
And then 27 to 31, he's going to ask us to consider that calling from what it is, and then we'll see the natural result of that. So let's dig in. Let's consider our calling, first of all, from what it's not. He says in verse 26, again, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So here's three things that, that Paul says were not part of your calling. And I believe they would kind of summarize or maybe uh, take into consideration the entire human existence. He says it's not by our mind, which would refer to uh, you know, the word wise. Not many wise were called. He says it's not many powerful, your body. And he says not many of noble birth or your status. So you know, your brains, your biceps, and your birth, they don't matter when it comes to God's calling. Now the world thinks those things matter. Notice the phrase here, he says, not many of you are wise, powerful, or noble birth according to the world standards. So he's saying, this is how the world sizes people up on externals, your intellect, your physical prowess, perhaps your birth order or your status, your family name, your legacy or your history, your heritage. That's how the world sizes you up. And by the way, that's in eight. I mean, we, we do that from the earliest ages. I have an 18 month old grandson. His name's Clay. Um, he knows me as Papa, and he knows me one of the ways is because I'm bald. So every time he sees a bald man, Papa. The other day, Brandon told me he saw this 30 year old guy in his yard, shirt was off, he's like trim and buff. Clay goes, Papa. The guy was bald, you know, he's working in his yard like, but the next day, like this 82 year old guy, barely make her street. He's 82. He's bald. Papa, right? So there's no pride in that, right? But Clay's just doing what we do. We measure people up. We kind of look at them. We size them up. We make external judgments. None of those are in play when it comes to God's calling. It's not about what you have or don't have or did or didn't do. Paul says those were not considerations. It wasn't about our mind or our body or our status. In other words, we say this, your calling is not humanly achieved. It's not about you. Now, now notice the text actually says not many of you. So some could say, well, were there some then who had wealth, wisdom, or power? Were they called on that status? No, Paul's not saying that they were called on that status. He's saying the constitution of the Corinthian church was generally those who weren't of any societal influence. They weren't intellectually, you know, on the certain, in the certain ranks or, or physically or in, in a certain class by their birth. There may have been some in that church who were in that, but he says this, it doesn't matter if you were in that or not in that. I think what he's saying is this, those things are a non-factor. I find such, such relief in that, don't you? Don't you feel like you can just kind of breathe now? Like, oh, God doesn't look at either ends of the spectrum. He's not worried about if I was born in the right place or wasn't, or if I did the right thing. He's not worried about uh, if I had the right strength or didn't have the strength or if I'm good looking or not. None of that is a factor in God's calling. Why? Because it's not about you or me. So that's what it's not. It's not humanly achieved. Now this clearly affirms how God has worked throughout history. I reference especially Israel from Deuteronomy 7. Notice what God says to Israel about his calling upon them. That it was not because, look what he says in this verse. 
It's not because you were more in number than any other people. Isn't that interesting? He uses the same kind of negative uh, word here. It's not because you thought you were something. But he's, he's saying here, it's because of my own choice to set my love upon you in spite of what you were or what you weren't. God is the owner, the activated, the proactive one. This is very similar to how we operated with David, who was the last born of the sons. Remember that? He lined them all up. The prophet did, Samuel. Pick out the future king. David wasn't even in the, in the lineup. He's still out in the fields. He wasn't even brought in the house, but that's the one God chose. Remember Gideon, the fearful one who had the smallest army? That's the one God used. And by the way, don't forget the town in which Christ was born. Micah 5.2 says this, Oh, Bethlehem, you're too small to be considered among the clans of Judah. And yet in all three instances, and even Israel as a group, God flips the equation. He turns this thing upside down. He does not base his calling on anything physical or about us or intellectual, powerful. None of that is into consideration. That's what it is not. So consider that about your calling. Remember, that's our goal today, to think about, contemplate our testimony, to meditate on that. It is not by human achievement. So what is it then? Let's analyze the second angle, beginning in verse 27. We're gonna see that it is divinely granted. Let me read for you what 27 says. But God, don't you love those two words? Say them with me, would you? But God, beautiful pivot there. It's not this, but here's what it is. And God is the player. God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I love this pivot in verse 27 because it shows us that our calling is based solely and wholly on God. It's rooted in God. Our salvation has everything to do with God. It's not based on us. It's not humanly achieved. It is divinely granted. I bring this to your attention for two main reasons. One is, notice the use of God's name in this text. There are eight Trinitarian references in the final five verses. Five of those eight references are the, are the explicit use of God's name. Five times. Then there's one pronoun, the pronoun him, and then the title Lord, as well as the name Jesus Christ. Eight Trinitarian references in the final few verses. Your name's not in there. My name's not in there. God's name blankets it, saying to us that salvation, our calling as we consider it, is all about God. And secondly, I like the way he uses these precise words. Notice them with me. Let's look at our Bibles. Nose right there in the pages, can you? He says that he chose, so there's action on God's part. There's, there's first step action. There's causal action. God chose what is foolish. That's the opposite of wise in verse 26. Connect these dots, okay? He chose what is weak. That's the opposite of powerful in verse 26. He chose what is low and despised. That's the opposite of noble birth. You can kind of get the idea of the classes being born, so to speak. And he chose the things that are not. That's, that's amazing to me that God can actually proactively choose things that are not yet in existence. 
to actually bring to nothing what actually currently exists. I can't even get my hands around that, but God does that. What's happening here is the, the nullifying. Watch this. The progressive, and I'm going to use this word rightly, the progressive diminishing until it is finally nullified. It's this um, of, of all of man's pride and achievement. That's what God's up to. He's purging, excommunicating. He's ridding mankind of any pride or credit. And I would say to you, this is a progressive action God is taking. Let me explain that to you. Let's push pause for a minute. Let me kind of walk you through this. This is a morsel that I want you to chew on and just kind of let it roll around in your mouth, under your tongue. Just, just enjoy the flavor of these verses. This is, this is so delightful. The words shame or the words confound, those are verbs there. And then the, wor- the verb bring to nothing, they are progressive, but they're also, so they're escalating, but they're also Old Testament language. What we call eschaton words. They speak in the Old and New Testament about what is still to come. So when he says, we're going to be shaming or confounding the wise and the strong, and we're going to actually bring to nothing the things that are by what is not, he's saying there's this progression in place that God is gradually but ultimately going to rid man of pride. He's going to bring down all our human achievement systems, so to speak, by his grace and his wisdom and his what the world would call foolishness. This is what God is up to. It's looking to this end time when Christ comes And everything is once and for all righted. It's kind of the same idea as the already but not yet kingdom. Let me show you two places in the Old Testament where these words are used and you'll kind of get the same sense. Same words, but in the Hebrew language. Look at this, Isaiah 41. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to what church? Shame. And say it with me, confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as, what is it? Nothing and shall perish. You see this progressive kind of eschatological language here? That yes, God is nullifying pride now, but he will ultimately, finally one day do it when Christ returns. Look at Psalm 83. Explicit language here with some of the same words. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. God's aiming in ridding us of pride, in diminishing and then crushing human achievement is so that he will be seen as the only one who can save. He alone gets the glory. And so understand, church, this is what's happening here in these verses. This is that that little morsel to let it kind of roll around in your mouth, that there's future tense implications here. Now understand, though Christ one day will return and he will make all things right, he'll nullify all human pride and achievement. Understand, That is still happening progressively even now. Think with me practically. Every time someone's born again, God is showing that his perceived weakness and foolishness, i.e. the cross, is actually stronger than our smartest moment or brightest people. Every time someone's born again, that's what occurs. God's weakness is seen as stronger. His wisdom, man, is smarter or they would call this foolishness. And one day, that, that what the world sees as weakness and foolishness will actually consummate in his kingdom. And then Philippians 2 will occur. Every knee will bow and every voice will be raised to the glory of God the Father and they will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what this language is, is looking forwards to. 
that God is up to something and he's confounding the wise. He's putting to shame the strong and he's gradually but ultimately going to nullify it and rid mankind of all of their pride by showing his wisdom to be the strongest. So let's get back to our text most specifically, 27 to 29. They clearly show God as the author and the finisher of our faith. Church, make no mistake, let there be no confusion. It is God who calls. It is God who chooses. It is God who saves. So as you think about your calling, as you contemplate your testimony, see what it is. It is divinely granted by God. So I'll be Windex clear here, okay? God calls. God chooses. We respond in belief. Now, verse 21 is quite clear about that. We do believe, amen. But I want to make sure you understand something here. We would not have believed if God had not called. You would not have responded spiritually had God not raised you spiritually. And you say, Todd, how does that work? How does that happen? Explain that further. Let me try by asking to always remember this. God's call always creates what it commands. I'll say it again to you. God's call always creates what it commands. Two examples. When Jesus was on the seashore and he called to his disciples who would, well, his soon-to-be disciples, Peter or John or Matthew, he would say, follow me. What did they do? Say, man, Jesus, I'm glad you showed up. I had it on my agenda to follow you today. So you're right on time. I'm headed your way. That wasn't how it happened. The Bible says they were working in their own world, mending their nets, doing their things, and they left everything and followed him. It was an interruption. But what empowered their following was the call of Christ. His call created what it commanded. The same thing is true for Lazarus. You recall Lazarus? He's dead, D-E-A-D. Christ shows up in their minds four days late. But he calls out, Lazarus, get out here, right? Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus was not in the tomb thinking, man, Jesus, could you hurry up and get here to Bethany? Like, I want to surprise my family. I want to kind of, you know, help them rejoice. Like, come on, I need to come out. He's not thinking that. He's dead. But when Christ calls him, the command is empowered. See, Christ's declared word always empowers God's decreed will. And though the call goes to all to repent, when the Holy Spirit moves upon someone's heart and blows upon their bones and regenerates them, guess what? Man, they're, they're brought to life by God. It is about God. Our salvation is to his credit. I think this is true in your own testimony, in my own testimony. I was thinking about Travis's exhortation to us last week to think about our testimony during these but God sermons. I was thinking about mine this week in regards to this text. I was in eighth grade, I think it was, 14 years old, in the chapel service in a Christian school. I walked into that auditorium, sat down on the third row. Sure, I was born again. I was confident I was saved. I was in a Christian school with a really great home. I mean, it was like a, a, a perfect situation, a good church. Like, I don't need to, to hear a message on salvation, but somewhere in that middle of that chapel service, God's spirit breathed upon me. And I realized I'm lost. 
I'm not born again. I'm just a good kid. Good kids go to hell like everybody else. And God breathed upon me and called me effectually. He summoned me to salvation. And on that day, I remember just saying, God, I believe. And it was irresistible that God would love me and save me. I think about Brooke. She's home for the weekend for Father's Day. Love having her here. And she's the most recent of our children to become a Christian just a few years ago. She was raised in what I hope is a good home, a <laughs> good Christian home. She was five when this church was planted. All she's known is for his family. I mean, the gospel's been pounding her, kind of like Travis's story. Just that's what she's known. But for some reason, when she's a freshman in college, she heard the gospel and suddenly the spirit effectually called her and she realized, man, I've had a lot of good surroundings, but I've never had the spirit quicken me. And she was saved as a freshman in college. Remember, she called us. And just like Travis said, she's like, uh, Dad, Mom, I got to tell you something. It's like she's nervous. And we didn't want any credit. We don't, we're just glad that she's born again. Amen, church. You see, it's, it's about God's call and his work. That's what these verses are saying to us. And so keep in mind, we believe, yes, we actively, willfully Put faith in Christ as a choice. But none of that would happen if the Spirit did not empower it because God's call always creates what it commands. So as you think about this, this text now, as you consider your calling, what it isn't, it's not by human achievement, and what it is, it's divinely granted, the natural question becomes, why this emphatic urge to think about our calling? Why would Paul um, you know, push us to meditate on our conversion moment? Why is he so adamant that we give this um, contemplation, that we take heed to our testimony? It's because there can be no boasting. I think it's Paul's way to get us on board God's train, so to speak. The end goal being no boasting. Paul's like, hey, this is where the train's headed. Man, jump on board. There is no boasting. That's what verse 29 begins. Do you see that in verse 29? In fact, notice the first two words. They're words of purpose. So that, here's why I want you to contemplate your calling. Here's why I want you to see what it isn't and what it is so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, the greatest good for all peoples everywhere is for God to be glorified to the max. That means no pollution or corruption because of our infringement or intrusion by way of boasting in ourselves. No to that a thousand times, church. As you think about your calling, this is the destination. All 10 fingers upward towards God. Our bodies fully prostrate. We're on our faces. We're completely wrecked and laid low in humility by God's work on our behalf. It is all from God, through God, and to God, and for God. Romans 11. That's the end destination. No one would boast. Paul continues with his reasoning about why we can't boast in verse 30. He becomes somewhat repetitious. Do you notice that? And yet he becomes even more succinct. Look at verse 30. And because of him. He, he could have just said that at the beginning, couldn't he? Three words that summarize it all. 
and because of God, you're in Christ Jesus. Notice what's not there. Your name's not there. My name's not there. I'm not trying to, uh, in, you know, cause you consternation or rain on your parade, but I'm just being theologically sound with you. Salvation is holy and solely a work of God. It's because of him. Paul here is so blunt and beautifully concise. And the result is that we are in Jesus. Do you notice that? In fact, notice what it says here. It says that Jesus is the wisdom of God. I love that word because it is used in, this, in these first two chapters to speak of how it's actually God's wisdom that, that the world sees as foolishness, but that's actually stronger than the world's smartest person. And so if God's wisdom is Jesus, that means that Jesus, when he came and lived and died and was buried and rose again, the world sees that as like, that's not a winner. That's not powerful. That's not smart. That's not classy, but it's actually the power of God that saves people. It's Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. What the world sees as foolishness, as weak, God says, no, it's actually my wisdom and power. And because of Jesus, it says, we now have his righteousness, his sanctification, his redemption. I can't speak on those words today. That's a whole message, but just know this. I do think they refer to a couple of things. They're either referring to the, the timeline of our salvation Righteousness being the past where God credits us and justifies us with his son's righteousness. Our present where he's sanctifying us and then our future where he's redeeming our bodies. Could be that. It may actually just be three words that describe the metaphors of salvation. For instance, when he says he's our righteousness, that means he's our, our, our legal standing. We're, we're right by Christ's work. We're justified. Sanctification could refer to the practical aspects and then Redemption could return to those financial aspects. We're no longer in debt because of Christ. So it could be a number of things there. But I think these three words describe Christ Jesus as wisdom, and they give us further insight to that. The point is, all of this that's given to us, being in Christ and receiving all these blessings, they are from God. You did not put yourself there. I didn't put myself there. God put you there. And so it makes sense that he would then say in verse 31, so if you're going to boast, boast only in the Lord. Don't you find it odd that he said in verse 29, no boasting? And now he says, oh, by the way, you can boast, but you got to boast a certain way. So he's shown us really the, the wrong kind of boasting and then the right kind of boasting. And that fits the theme of this text. Because remember, he's asking us to consider our calling. He says, here's what it isn't. Here's what it is. And now he says, oh, about boasting, here's the kind you can't do, but here's the kind you should do. And the only kind of boasting allowed in God's family is boasting in the Lord. Notice what the text says. If you're going to boast, verse 31, boast only in the Lord. There's an exclusivity here that we need to make sure we remember. That this is what we will glory in. That God has saved us. It is holy and solely his. And so our testimony is all about God and not about us. It's very reminiscent of Galatians 6.14. Here's what Paul would write about boasting. He says this, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know why I love that verse? 
Because Paul isn't one of these American Christians who says, yeah, I'll boast in Jesus, but I'm going to get really close to making sure that there's a little credit for me too. Like I'll boast primarily in Jesus. Oh, I'll boast mainly in Jesus. Paul says, I'm getting as far away from the cliff of boasting as I can. And I'm boasting in one thing, the cross of Jesus. And he says, it's that cross by which the world has been crucified to me. In other words, it doesn't matter what they think about me. They can call me weak, foolish, low, despised. I'm dead to that. And then he says, I'm crucified to the world. They don't really care what I think either. It's an upside down kingdom in the middle of this world that we're living in. And Paul says, man, this is how we'll boast only exclusively in the cross of Jesus. So this is how you should think about your calling, brothers and sisters. From what it isn't first, and then from what it is, and that should lead you to where you realize, wow, I have no credit. I'm not boasting, it's all God. Now I suspect that some listening or watching, maybe some in this room, you may find this hard to swallow. You may find that inwardly you're pushing back against this passage. You're squirming on the inside right now. You find for some reason that you still want to insert yourself somewhere, somehow into this this salvation moment. Like, Like you want to have a leading part in the play. To you, I want to ask a question. Why do you need to find a small corner in the great hall of God's salvation to hang a a simple plaque with your name on it? Why? Why do you need to find even a small platform to stand on to, to brag about your decision, your choice, Why can't we all just humbly say it is all God? You see, I think those kinds of actions where we want to try to find a platform for our name, where we want to try to find a place to hang a plaque of credit to ourselves, I think those should be unthinkable. The point is not to try and weasel into the equation so that you have some sort of angle by which to make your name known, me to make my face seen. The point of these verses is to glory in this, that God interrupted your parade of human pride, your pursuit of human worth, all that you were and weren't. He interrupted every bit of that with his irresistible calling and he created in you new life that did not depend on anything you were or anything you weren't. He simply showed you his great love in Jesus, his son crucified, and you responded, repented, and believed. It's about God, not about you and not about me. Let's boast in that. And this is the very truth that also has many of you right now giddy with godly gratefulness. 
I can see the corners of your mouths. They're, they're just wanting to, they're growing higher. You know why? Because you have yet to get over the day God saved you. You remember that day when on the treadmill of performance, man, you're trying to measure up. And you're, you're peddling, you're working, you're performing, you're gaining, you're being, but it's never good enough. And it was precisely in that moment of your spiritual weakness that God said, this is why I'm saving you. It was precisely your inability that God rescued you from. It was exactly your poverty and your debt spiritually. That's why God gave you his son's riches. You see, God saved you when, not when you showed you could earn it, but actually quite the opposite, when you least deserved it. And you have yet to get over that. And I love seeing the faces, and I love, I use this word metaphorically, hearing the heartbeats and seeing the pounding chest of truly converted people who have yet to get over God's amazing, undeserved grace. You've been thinking about your calling, haven't you? You've been contemplating your conversion and it astounds you to this day that God would choose you, that God would call you and that God would save you. Hallelujah, brother and sister. I love the fact that you're thinking about your calling. So let's answer the question, shall we? We've looked at our conversion, what it isn't and what it is. The goal was to answer the question, then who can be saved? We saw last week how we are saved. We're going to look this week in this text, how, uh, who can be saved? So is there an answer to the question based on the text? There is. This is a beautiful text that answers the question. In fact, we're kind of in the place of the disciples in this text. Remember the disciples in Matthew 19? The rich man comes to Christ. He'd obeyed all the law. He was like this really good person. But he leaves, he turns away, and he rejects Christ. He does not receive eternal life. And the disciples are like, man... If he's not getting in, no one's got any hope. And they asked the Lord, point blank, who then can be saved? If he doesn't qualify, have you seen us? I mean, a bunch of ragtag guys who are fishermen. Hey, Jesus, there's something wrong here. If he doesn't get in, who does get in? Who is saved? It's a good question to ask. We can most assuredly say, based on this text, here's the answer to the question, who then can be saved? It's the God called, not the man made. It's the God called, not the man made. It's the lowly, not the worthy. It's those who know they're nobodies, not those who think they're somebodies. It's the beggars, not the boasters. You see, church, hear me loud and clear with no confusion. God's not looking for your resume. God's looking for your repentance. Jesus Christ said this in effect in a story he told in Luke 18. It's a parable. I'll close with this. It's about two men. One's a Pharisee, one's a tax collector. Two ends of the spectrum, right? Right? The Bible says that they both went to the temple to pray 
And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I got. Here's a man who was born right, acted right. He's spiritually muscular, right? I mean, he's got what it takes. Surely he gets in. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus, in his divine commentary, says, I tell you that this man, the sinner, rather than the other, went home justified before God. God's not looking for your resume. He's looking for repentance. That's who God saves. If this morning you realize that you have nothing that impresses God, instead you stand in great need of God, you can be saved. You are being called. You've been chosen in great love by God who saves people. Not those who believe they are worthy, but those who believe only he is able. If you arrive at that conclusion after considering your calling, hallelujah for you brothers and sisters. May we boast forever in that. Let's pray. I hope you're still in that circle that you drew around your chair. Because as we prepare to end our service with communion, it would just, it's, it, I have to lean into you just for one more minute with your heads bowed. I've been so burdened over the last several months, but even in the last week especially, with this idea of boasting. I've chatted with Julie about it on several occasions, and I think the Lord's been working me over, to be honest with you. I think he needs to work over our, our church and our Christian culture. Because here, here's what I, I wonder, how, how, can, how can there remain in anyone a single little finger trying to hold on to the wheel of credit when you look at what God has done? He took the action. He spoke the words. He called us to himself. And if you find this morning that there is lodging in your heart some odd need to make sure your name is on the dotted line somehow, if you find this strange inclination to still retain some sense of bragging rights, I, as your pastor, I can't pastorally neglect that and not warn you that there is possibility you've not actually been born again. That you've come to Jesus with your own agenda. 
You thought you could earn your way or achieve your way in and no one gets in that way. And I just want to put before our church what's a deep burden in my heart that we never boast in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus. May his name be the only name exalted and lifted up. If you find that perhaps that is you, that, you, that maybe you're really not born again, but you've got a strong resume, you've never really experienced repentance from all your good and bad, this morning, there'll be some folks at the front afterwards, men and women, who will love to pray with you and talk with you and maybe help answer some questions. Don't avoid this conversation with yourself and with someone else as it may be the most important conversation of your lifetime. Oh, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.